Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Yes, Annie and Kim here for you on this uh, Easter weekend. Yes, it doesn't feel like Easter. I haven't had any chocolate. No, I haven't either. Well, it was the death day yesterday. That You're not supposed to have chocolate on Good Friday. Oh, yeah, I should remember that. Yeah, that's right. It's it's not supposed to be a happy day. Although all those crowds of people who were uh, flocking to the inner city yesterday night probably didn't know the difference. They just thought it was a holiday. Shame. Shame. Oh, yes, that's right. But what we've been doing is going down to the... Uh, uh, College of the Arts, uh, down near the gallery, to the Marxist conference. Yeah, it started. They don't recognise it as Jesus's death day either. No, that's right. They <laughs> were they were hot to trot. Um, had a great time. It was a lovely weather, and uh, in fact, if you're interested, you could go down there and share the uh, wonderfulness. It starts again today at ten, uh, and uh, it's on again on Sunday as well. Yeah, so you can get one-day tickets, or I, I suppose you could probably get cheap whole weekend tickets now. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and the reason for why we're spruiking is because it was just a great cornucopia of uh, discussion and uh, interesting uh, sessions. I went to quite a few. Yeah, there's seven at a time now, which uh, just which makes you. it which makes you feel sad because there's at least about five things that you want to see at once. I know, I know, and there's also films as well. And uh, so uh, we uh, collected some uh, tidbits for you uh, during the uh, week from some of the uh, speakers, uh, and we're going to highlight some of those speakers for you today, this morning. Uh, the first one that we're going to talk to is uh, Sandra Bloodworth, who is a local woman who uh, has uh, written some extraordinary uh, material around uh, women in uh, activism. But uh, her speech, she, what she was talking about, I mean, it's in the stream of gender and sexuality, and that points out that there's a whole lot of streams at the Marxist conference, which mm. allows you to actually work out where you want to go. So... Uh, and in the future, we'll be playing you some of the stuff that we've collected from that. But uh, getting back to Sandra Bloodworth, uh, her talk, the first talk that she, she gave was In Defence of Engels, The Origins of the Family, Private Property and the State. And I had a little chat with her about that talk. 
Uh, but uh, if you're interested in what she's got to say, and this is the thing, it's the charis- uh not just the information, but it's the charisma of the speakers. It's fantastic to uh, watch people talk about things that they're knowledgeable about and then have, uh, instead of questions, generally people actually have read material around this and then contribute at the end of the conversa- conversation. Well, that's what I found really interesting about now, this session, because I, I I got to go to it, and I've been to Sandra's sessions before, and she often comes up with new academic material about the topic, which I find really exciting, because what we're talking about is pre-class human societies where women were not oppressed the way that they have been for the last few thousand years. And that is really fascinating and exciting. And we even talked about Neanderthals in the discussions. So there were some people who obviously know a bit more about... Um, early humans and our cousins than I do. And I found out that we still have some Neanderthal DNA. Yeah, we do. Um, so, yeah, it goes all the way back. But be very oh, I, I remember thinking as a kid, how is it possible for a whole group of people to just disappear off the face of the earth? I always knew. I had a bet with myself that there was uh, Neanderthal DNA and then mm. they've all caught up with me. They've proved it. Well, one thing that, we, that they were talking about was I was wondering how they disappeared. I think some people in the discussion were suggesting that partly it was the fact that gathering was more important than hunting and the Neanderthals were very focused on hunting. Because oh, you yeah. can't, you know, if you're dependent on live game, it's quite uh, precarious. Mm, that's right. Well, of course, uh, there's been discussion about this before. William Golding's The Inheritors is all about the um, theory that uh, Homo sapiens are just so violent that they killed them all in one fell swoop. <laughs> well, this is what they were talking about in the... Because you're thinking, how does this relate to women's oppression? Actually, human beings and researchers have a tendency to basically rewrite history and put our own conceptions of our own capitalistic conceptions on pre-class society and that simply, it really makes the research quite biased. Well, of course, it's very hard to um, not speak outside the culture that you're in. Yeah, I mean, there are examples where people found dress that looked like it was female, so they assumed that all the bones were female, and then they later bothered to do some DNA testing and found out that they weren't. So people obviously didn't dress in a kind of gendered way that we think about today. Anyway, I should let Sandra talk about it. Yeah, yeah well, she doesn't go into that much depth So that in my little interview with her, but uh, uh, as I said, it's a bit of a taster, and, uh, and in fact, she tells us that she's going to be speaking on another issue uh, to, uh, on Saturday, so uh, it's about from Marx to Lucas, class consciousness and social change. So she's a heavyweight and uh, she uh, is going to speak again at the Marxist conference at 11.30am. So there you go. Now, and later on, uh, another stream that's in the uh, conference is uh, the Middle East. So it goes to modern politics and uh uh, I spoke to Farah Kobasi, who is from Lebanon. She uh, spoke on Friday. so uh, I got to hear her last night as well on Syria, which was a very lively session. They always are. It's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and we're going, so we've got a little bit of a chat with her. And then later on uh, in the program, after we do a live cross to Kevin Healy with This Is The Week That Was, startling stuff, um, we've uh, got a, a chat with Manda Noskzi, uh, who is a South African uh, fellow who uh, has been an activist since he was a young sprite. During he, apartheid. 
Yes, he was a part of the student uprisings in uh, 1976, uh, tumultuous times, uh, terrifying and uh, frightening times. Uh, He was a young chap of 15 who was embroiled in the whole fight back against uh, the oppression of the Africans in South Africa. So we had a very interesting chat about that. And he is, again, going to be speaking tonight at 7.30 about... South Africa since apartheid. I've been told that, I remember another South African speaker who came maybe a year or two ago was boasting that if you take it per capita, because the most protests in the world are in China, but per capita, South Africa, they're very proud. (laughs) Not surprised. You're on uh, 3CR with Annie and Kim. This is Solidarity Breakfast. New illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website... 3cr.org.au or pick up your copy at the station. Yeah, well, let's get on now and uh, hear from uh, Sandra Bloodworth about uh, her, the speech that she gave last on Friday, but also in general, who uh, is just nice to talk to people who... Uh, have got something to say. I'm pretty fascinated by the talk that you're intending to give at the Marxist conference uh, in defence of Engels, the origin of the family, private property and the state. Can you explain to me uh, the notion that causes so much uh, controversy around Engels' uh, concepts around this, which is that uh, class society meant the historic defeat of women? What, What was he talking about? Well, the whole Marxist analysis, it's not just Engels, really. He built on what Marx had. Marx had been studying um, the anthropology of early societies from what, you know, what information there was. And Engels was interested in it. And so they concluded that humans hadn't always lived in hierarchical societies and um, that somehow in the transition from egalitarian societies to the development of class society women became women became an oppressed you know oppressed half of the um, community in the process and so partly the question was to explain why that might have happened because um, you know the more right-wing explanations are always that it's just part of human nature that men are naturally domineering and women are more passive and um, but it was fairly clear to them that women hadn't been oppressed. Um, and so they argued that even though... So Engels says at one stage that he couldn't really clearly explain why the how it happened, but it was clear that it did happen. Um, and so what I've looked at is all the latest anthropology and archaeology, archaeology in particular, where people are gradually building up a clearer picture of early societies and more of a whole picture of how the transition from egalitarian to class societies happened. 
And it, like, it took thousands of years, so there's a whole process of history to look at. And um, so I'm going to offer an explanation of how in the transition, once there was wealth in society that could be stored and held, kept, which Marxists call a surplus, there, a group of people eventually you know, became responsible for organising that. And at first that was just a social role that they played, but at some point, which you know isn't that easily documented really, that group of people, which uh, increasingly were sort of families that had responsibility for looking after that surplus, actually, and redistributing it when it was needed to people, um, must have begun to identify their interests with the interests of society as a whole, and they become more and more a clearly ruling group who then build state apparatus to defend their position as the people who, you know, dominate society. And in the process, um, it seems that women moved from a situation in which they played an equal role in society and organised their reproduction around the needs of the how the community fed and clothed itself. And so they did gathering and all kinds of other um, activity. They're actually involved in hunting a lot more than people ever used to think. And um, gradually, as societies became more settled, women were having more children for a variety of reasons. And so they're gradually not as involved in some of the key aspects of organising the surplus or even producing it. And, um, and so the lines of descent that people recognised were gradually changed from through the mother's line through the men's line, so from matrilineal to patrilineal. And to do that, you had to control women's sexuality because previously women had whatever number of sexual partners they wanted. And you, if you were doing that, no one knew who the father of any particular child was. But to sort of have dissent in terms of responsibility for production and that, they gradually moved to um, the inheritance of this surplus went through the boys and so women's sexuality had to be controlled. And so that led to, you know, um, that's sort of the beginning of all the repressive things we know about women's oppression, which obviously is much more developed and has taken on its own aspects under capitalism. Yeah, it's fascinating. So it, a yes. lot of that's quite technical and um, is to do, like I've looked at all the latest archaeological information and it's clearly more the case than what Engels could prove that the oppression of women and the beginning of that is associated with this change from egalitarian to class societies. And so I'm going to try and give a clearer picture than Engels gave of that process. Well, I mean, you've, you've had a long history of uh, activism and, in fact, you uh, have, uh, you know, produced a, a book called uh, Women in Australian Working Class History. Uh, mm. rebel women, rebel women, mm-hmm. as opposed to mm. uh, stay-at-home women, as it were. Uh, so, mm. but um, so, do you see any kind of parallels with uh, that breaking out from uh, established uh, r- roles uh, in a sort of a fairly oppressive female um, stereotype uh, with the things that uh, Engels was putting forward and also the things that you were finding with particular rebel women as you described them. Yes. Well, that's, in some ways, that's sort of another discussion. Um, But it is the case that a lot of Engels' critics 
um, more engaged with the arguments about, well, how do we get rid of women's oppression because people can't um, accept that women's oppression and the women's liberation is tied up with the working class leading a revolution um, it's because there's a stereotypical idea of the working class as being all men, which um, Engels and Marx were always very conscious that that wasn't the case, and they put a lot of work into trying to organise working class women and to encourage the unions to include women and to fight for their right to work because they saw that women would play an equal role in the struggle if they were working and they could be organised as trade unionists and be part of the class struggle, whereas if they're isolated at home, just, you know, relegated out of the workplace, they don't really have any social power. And uh, and so part of arguing for women to be unionised and included in the class struggle is a way of trying to challenge working-class men's own acceptance of sexist ideas and things. And so my book is a lot about that, about how um, there's a certain spontaneous element to the process that when workers do fight, well, the need for solidarity actually overrides a lot of the divisive ideas that are accepted for most of the time. And so sexism is one of the big things, you know, that workers that have thought that women do belong in the home, when it comes to a struggle, often will end up accepting the women playing an active role in the struggle because it's necessary. And then the women often play such a prominent role and have been so militant that men have their ideas challenged. So that's, I mean, that's one of my favourite topics really, talking about how struggle just transforms people so much that um, the idea that women would just be left behind and you could have a socialist revolution that didn't involve women, like if half the working class isn't involved in the struggle, they won't win. That's just a simple fact. You wouldn't be able to establish um, a revolution that overthrew a system like capitalism if women weren't involved in it because you're talking about half the working class. Now, it's, um, it's also interesting. And so that, that is part of Engels' argument, and it's one of the arguments that is rejected as probably more so than whether women's oppression is associated with the rise of class in the first place. It, it's interesting because uh, I've just been reading Engels' uh, uh, description of uh, English working class uh, conditions in the English working class when he w- he wrote this when he was twenty four and uh, he's got this uh, uh, fantastic way of uh, just saying something that is uh, in a sentence which is explosively important uh, and uh, it's quite clear that he had quite an inquiring mind. Uh, it was uh, quite fascinating to me to hear his description of the Irish as being. Uh, a inbuilt uh, 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 low life, basically a culturally low life. But so I was interested. I know, yeah. I was the so... way he talked about the Irish in that book, you wouldn't talk about them like that today. And you know, in spite of all that, he was involved in fighting for Irish republicanism and fighting for their rights in Britain. Eventually, so it's sort of the way the terminologies worked as well. It's a t- sort of a language thing, you know, it changes the way people talk about it, but he was very conscious of the oppression of the Irish working class. And to a modern mm. ear, it sounds as though he's just treating them with disdain. Um, and it's hard to tell because he was only very young and he hadn't really become a Marxist in any serious sense. But he also has things in that book about the position of women, because he says at one stage, well, because women are being drawn into the workplace, um, and the children are left to, you know, really neglected and that. 
Um, he says that, and then in some industries, women are employed because they're employed on lower wages and men end up unemployed. And he says this overturns the sort of accepted norms in the in the house and you think that he's sort of think saying, oh, you know, this is a bad thing, but then he actually goes on to say, well, this just shows you that the original idea that only the women can do the housework and men should work was a stupid idea in the first place <laughs> and that there's nothing natural about it and that men can look after the children just as much as the women. So there was an aspect to Engels that he was always very sensitive to the issues of oppression and um, doesn't always express them in the terms we would today, but sort of recognised them when he saw them. Yeah, the, it's yes, very. It's actually. It's a wonderful book. I love that book. Yeah, and and it's actually incredibly refreshing. That's what I was really. I mean, I was surprised yeah, that yeah. he had those terms. He applied those terms to the Irish, and I was wondering because I haven't yeah. read anything about his series about women, yeah. if he saw it the same yeah. way. And I mean, it's quite clear that, uh, and I've heard people say this. Uh, in the capitalist paradigm or the imperialist paradigm that you've got to have a slave class and uh, obviously women drew, drew the short straw. Well, I, I wouldn't quite explain it that way because because we think women's oppression began like thousands of years ago, it's become so established of all class societies that we don't, like all written history has images of women that fit with stereotypes that we know, you know, the way women have been portrayed. And they do change over time. Um, so capitalism took on all the sort of institutions of feudalism, ideas from the church, the way, and they reorganised the family, like the peasant family was destroyed. But they couldn't really go on forever with the children not being... Um, looked after and being kept healthy. And so there was actually a campaign in Britain in particular and will cross other European countries. And here in Australia it happened as well that they fought for uh, reforms that pushed women to be the housekeepers and to be at home with the children more and to work less. And that, that you know, gave rise to some of the things we talk about at times about the family wage. You know, the, the more far-sighted capitalists said, well... We can't reproduce the working class if you don't if we don't have someone to look after the children. They have to be healthy because you think what industrial Britain was like when Engels was writing. In some of the it's um, incredible, in fact, like Manchester, yeah, it was terrible. Like the yeah. children were only living to fifteen in some industries, and I know. life expectancy was about thirty-five or something for workers in a lot of areas. And so, but like heaps of children were dying like in infancy, and it hadn't had mattered for some time but eventually when there weren't peasants being brought off the land because originally they were just you know closing off the common lands they were changing the way agriculture was organized and driving peasants off the land and so they created an easy you know ready supply of workers but once that ended well they had to reproduce the working class they didn't have people keeping coming off the land and and so that's how they sort of established the family and that you know, it's based on a fairly all the stereotypes that are known, and the the capitalist class were living in a nuclear family themselves by then, and so it's sort of the way people just thought of things. You know, that's how you would um, organise the children, because they could have had communal childcare, but that would have meant the state spending a lot of money and bosses paying a lot of taxes out of their profits. <laughs> they weren't about to do that, so it, it solved the problem. You know, they got a, a healthy working class reproduced. 
um, at the cheapest possible um, expense to themselves. Um, and so that established the whole thing of women having to do unpaid labour. It also, this your discussion and uh, that part of history really uh, illuminates how important Engels and Marx, their their analysis and people of their sort, their their analysis of this new era and how important it is still today, you'd say. Oh, definitely, yes. So, like, I'm doing another talk at Marxism on the Saturday um, about political consciousness and social change. And I'll be sort of doing... It's in the philosophy stream, so I'm talking... Sort of explaining why it is that when you have struggle, workers can overcome their sexism. Women who haven't been involved in anything much... Because a lot of my examples from that Rebel Women book are from 100 years ago when women were more confined to the home than today. And, like, I look at Broken Hill, where it was an all-male workforce in the mines, and yet every time they had a big strike, the women played a very prominent role. And so, you know, just the struggle itself really changes um, how people see themselves, how they relate to each other, what ideas they accept. And so I'm doing sort of the philosophy of how we understand why that might happen and why it makes it so important to see that trying to involve people in activity of fighting for their rights is so much more important than just trying to educate people in inverted commas. Often they won't accept your ideas until they have the experience of struggle themselves. Um, So, you know, I'm, I'm interested in that talk as much as the one on Engels to some extent because it's very topical. Um, on um, political consciousness and how it changes in struggle is at 11.30 on the Saturday. Great. um, Okay. So they're sort of related in a way. Yeah, they are related in a way. Everything's related in a way. Yeah, definitely. I think that was one of the things that really struck me, you know, reading about strikes that often either are about... Uh, workforces that are predominantly female or where women are involved is how their view of themselves changes and how uh, the rest of the workforce changes their view towards them. I think an example that I'd heard of is the women who were involved in the minor strike in Britain from 1984 to 85 and how being on the picket line with uh, their partners, with the police, you know, bashing their heads in, how that really changed the personal dynamics between these two people, as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah, the, the famous uh, book that Lynn Beaton has written about it, uh, yeah, it, the personal stories are incredibly compelling regarding uh, the change of identity that people experience in struggle. And women becoming public speakers who would go out and speak to different workplaces, you know, getting other people to try and support their strike. You'd never done public speaking in their lives. It's quite incredible how it changes you. Well, you were saying that actually uh, the trajectory of Sandra Bloodworth follows that in a certain sense. All of us standing up there and learning how to speak up and... uh, in fact, this is uh, something that comes out of the Marxist uh, uh, conference itself, the, the way people contribute ideas and how important it is to actually discuss things, not to uh, sit there on your hands. And, uh, well, that's the thing about humans. Humans can't be isolated. They're communal animals. And, in fact, if you actually wish to know something, then you need to actually discuss it. I think so as well, and I think one of the things that I really have been enjoying is that it's a variety of people who speak, and a lot of young women who speak at the conference, which 
For some reason, as a woman, I find the confidence of young women infectious. Oh, yes. And I'll tell you, I actually recorded uh, Gary Foley having his yarn, and uh, that will turn up on uh, 3CR. It will probably, you'll have bits from uh, that speech on Viv's program, which is on uh, a Monday, uh, Black Block. Uh, but uh, he said, he started off his speech looking out at the audience, and it was a large audience. Uh, he said, uh, first he did a cry, uh, shout out to the old people, like himself, and then he said, but there's not many of you in this audience. It was a young audience, which uh, tells you something about uh, the infectious nature of socialism and uh, also the nature of uh, struggle and conflict that we're actually experiencing at the moment in and the, the world. And the Bernie Sanders phenom- phenomenon. Um, I don't know if people saw in the mainstream media, they were talking about how apparently, oh, it's really fashionable to call yourself a socialist on campuses in the US, which I think that this was coming from a right-winger. I think that they're actually really overblowing it. But it shows no, you the, that... It's, it's being patronising. Being patronising, I think, as well as and saying that young people are silly and go through fads which is ridiculous, but I think what it does reflect is that there are more people in the world, and particularly in America, going, well, they keep going on about how great capitalism is and this system is screwing me over. They really hate socialism. Maybe I should find out what that is. (laughs) I think that's probably right. And, in fact, if you want to uh, join people and find out a little bit about and join in uh, and hear some interesting stuff, You can go to the Marxist Conference. It's on at the moment at the Victorian College of the Arts. It's on today and uh, finishes on Sunday. It's got a whole range of really interesting things. And one of the things I saw yesterday was a speech about um, the role, uh, radicalism in Hollywood from class war to Cold War in Hollywood, which was given by Liam Ward. It was a fascinating piece about, uh, and as he said, an untold history because, of course, Hollywood is so good and masterful at uh, uh, tailoring messages uh, uh, where everything's happy and great. But, of course, there were huge uh, demonstrations uh, throughout the 20s and 30s, uh, 40s uh, in uh, Hollywood. Uh, L.A. being a non-union town, which is prob- not much has changed. But part of that uh, stream uh, at uh, the conference is a series of films. And uh, today is going to be at 11.30. Uh, competing with Sandra Bloodworth is uh, The Look of Silence, which is the Joshua Oppenheimer's film about uh, Indonesia in 1965. They're going to have uh, How the West Was Lost on Saturday at 4pm, documentary on the 1946 Pilbara strike with intro from Gary Foley. Now, this is absolutely pivotal to Australian history. And uh, Sunday... Longest strike in Australian history? That's right. We'll wait, says uh, Vince Lugari, whatever his name is. Yeah, yeah, we're good waiters. Uh, Sunday, 11.30am, uh, they've got Blood on the Coals, which is the courageous story of the Queensland miners. And uh, on Sunday at 4pm, they've got Death of Liberty, which is uh, um, uh, rebels and radicals in colonial Australian history. All fascinating stuff. But now we're going to move on to uh, a little uh, chat that I had with Farah Kobasi, who's from Lebanon. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and we're highlighting some of the uh, spectacular stuff that's happening down at the uh, 
at the uh, Victorian Co- College, College of the Arts, Arts this weekend. Hey, oh. I'm, hey, I'm pretty fascinated. Now, you obviously are here at the uh, Marxist conference. I heard that your speech yesterday was at the opening night was uh, quite rousing. And one of the key things that someone said that you said was that uh, the capitalists are now calling the crisis of capitalism the crisis of refugees. Can you talk to that? Well, I believe that um, the, the Western governments are trying to move the crisis, uh, their crisis, the crisis that the, the capitalism has created, and to blame the refugees for that. They are trying to blame the refugees uh, for the scarcity of jobs, the unemployment rates that has been increasing since 2008. Um, they, are, they are blaming them for the security threats and all of this. So what we are witnessing is a total shift uh, of uh, the, the problem, the shift of the crisis from the capitalist crisis and uh, to uh, the people who are uh, the victims of this crisis, the refugees, uh, uh, they are trying to to picture uh, refugees ref- or refugeesness as a natural, uh, a natural uh, uh, disaster. They came uh, to Europe because of. They didn't come to Europe uh, because of a natural disaster in their countries. Um, they came to Europe after wars that has been generated by uh, governments in power who have been supported for so long by the Western governments, and they have been uh, implementing neoliberal policies that have created a lot of poverty and unemployment, and when they people try to defend themselves and try to say that we need, we want social justice and democracy and dignity, they replied uh, to them by using force, by using war, by using weapons, by using incarceration and all of this. People were fleeing this. They were fleeing all these catastrophes that has been created by a global international uh, capitalist system and dictatorship. Now you're from Lebanon and uh, you've recently been uh, had major disruption in Lebanon, well you're not um, lots of disruption in Lebanon in the past, but over rubbish garbage, garbage collection, can you talk about that? Actually in 2015 there, um, the garbage, there was a garbage crisis and still ongoing now it's still unresolved tons, hundreds of uh, uh, thousands of hundreds of uh, tons of garbage were piling in the street because of the corruption of the government and its unwillingness to find an ev- environmental justice solution uh, for, the, uh, for, the, uh, for the garbage. So uh, the garbage were uh, piling in the street and people started demonstrating, uh, uh, asking for solutions for this. And um, Thousands of people came to the streets and protesting the government's corruption. And actually, they were um, they were um, confronted with a police uh, brutality, police uh, uh, force, incarceration, and all of this. And it accumulated, and more people joined. But 
It's kind of parallel, isn't it? You know, the, the uh, reflections on refugee uh, and uh, capitalism and garbage and your, your government corruption. Yes, exactly. They all interconnect inter in a very fascinating ways. You, you're in a, a socialist organisation in Lebanon. How does that fit in the uh, overall context of uh, Lebanese politics? Um, wh what do you mean? Well, well uh, are you influential? Can you be influential in that context? Um, there's a big opportunities that opened uh, after 2011 revolutionary process in the region for the left to be active and we have seen the left playing a major role in Egypt uh, for instance in the uprising and yeah, the, the whole protest movement that occurred and still occurring and will continue in the, in the, in the near future um, is opening a new possibility for the left to reorganize itself and to reconnect uh, uh, with people and build strong organizations. Um, I, I, I look at uh, this process that opened in 2011 as a possibility uh, for us to play a more uh, important role. So uh, given the uh, uh, exodus of uh, refugees from Syria, the, uh, uh, what's happening in Egypt, uh, the um, movements in Lebanon, is there, uh, if there's an uh, organisation uh, that you know, people are working together in a leftist context, how to, how to work against such flagrant attacks by um, military and uh, government, outside governments? It's by organising more and it's by people taking, occupying the streets more and more. We should not um, um, give up for police force and police repression. We should fight this. Um, and people have been doing this, not only in Lebanon, as you said, in, uh, in Syria, in, uh, in Egypt. Uh, in Syria, soon after the... We, many people said it's it finished in Syria. Since 2013, there's less and less people protesting, and more and more you hear the guns and the, um, the, the, the sound of the, of, the, of the guns. The guns were speaking. And when, whenever there was like the the truth that uh, that started, people people emerged again and again. And you see that people didn't give up. They didn't give up to all the, this brutality and repression and destruction of the country and the mass migration that happened. People are still fighting, and this is the hope in which we rely on people every time to resist all forms of tyrannies, whether it's coming from Bashar al-Assad or coming from um, the, uh, the extremist and fundamentalist uh, groups uh, in, uh, in Syria, for instance. So people are defying, are continue, continue to resist, and this revolutionary process didn't stop. Okay? It will continue. It's, it's ongoing. Well, it's sort of interesting because the Western media uh, and uh, stereotypes the Middle East as a particular hotbed of uh, instability. But I mean, you, you're from Lebanon. What, what's it like for you? I mean, 
I think like the whole world is unstable today. And life is more and more precarious everywhere. Uh, people are losing like what's the Western yani a Western uh, uh, journalism would say about security threats, but they won't they would wouldn't speak about how security uh, is is absent not only in the, on the level of um, the direct sense of the security. Okay, it's not terrorism. We are living under terror, terror every day when we go to our jobs. We are not allowed to organize in our jobs. If we speak in our place to claim for a, a, a raise in our wages, we are instantly fired. So this is a kind of terror. Um, when we go to the street to protest for asking for any kind of reform in the system, we are faced by police everywhere. So this is a kind of terror. What is being happening in the globally on the level of refugees and the, the border control and the, attach, the, the rise of fascism everywhere, this is a kind of terror. Um, so I don't like yeah, the so stereotypes. When, you, when you, well, you, know, you say that, so uh, it's a, a fascism corporatism. Hmm. Do you see a connection? Between, yeah. Yeah, of course. The rise of fascism and the rise of social injustices are go in hand in hand somehow. Yeah, and the and the corporatism that uh, we're now uh, uh, no, the gloves are off. That uh, uh, big business doesn't seem to need to uh, bring the uh, greater population along. We're no longer living in an illusion that it's all for our all, all our benefits. Exactly, yeah. One other area of concern you have, your research, is into gender politics. Mm. Do you want to have a word about that? I'm interested like, in gender and migration and the labour movement. And this is what I've been like, um, studying for the past um, year or two. Um, how um, migrant workers, women in particular, get to organize themselves in our society. And it's quite fabulous the ways in which people uh, uh, find ways um, to resist, um, even if they are like the most exploited in society, as migrants and as women. Um, Can you give me some examples? So, for instance, much, most of the domestic workers in the country are migrants uh, coming from Asia and Africa and Lebanon, I'm talking. And they are living, living in most isolated work, workplaces and uh, because of the nature of uh, their work working conditions, they, they live and they work with their employer because of the kafala sponsorship system. And despite this, these migrant women have organized on a community level where they um, gathered uh, their sociality and they created sociality and a place where they uh, can feel loved, okay, and where they can share their um, their problems and try to come up with collective solutions for individual uh, problems. And then they moved to trade union organizing 
and it's more straightforward organizing that is claiming for certain rights, etc. And this happened like in, in the past uh, year in Lebanon. It was a quite a good development because uh, usually women, and especially if they were migrants, um, these, these two categories, migrant and women, were uh, historically alienated uh, um, from trade unions, uh, not only in Lebanon, it's, it's a global phenomenon. Trade unions are very masculinist and they are nationalists. Um, so it was quite an important development on the level of uh, uh, migration and gender because the unionization, because in a country where more than half of the working class is a migrant, uh, it's very important. Uh, it's very important but it, because it gives us a lesson that uh, we need to rethink our organizing uh, processes uh, that they are not anymore based on nationality uh, line uh, because our societies are more and more internationalized today. More fluid, yeah, that makes sense. Um, Oh, yeah, there was one last question, and then you can get on with your business. Um, are you happy to have been uh, asked to come and speak at this uh, Marxist conference here in Melbourne? I'm, I'm very happy. I'm very happy because uh, from the questions that I have been asked, and um, they are, make me learn a lot as well. And I'm looking forward for the coming days. And uh, today is, I'm presenting, and I finish from this and I become uh, someone who is coming to learn from other people's struggles. Um, so this is very important for me. I'm amazed also by the ways in which the comrades here are organizing and I want to learn from them as well. Um, five years back I was invited to speak um, on Marxism uh, by the comrades here but for one reason or another I couldn't come and when I look back to this I think that I was glad I couldn't come because back then I didn't have much to, sh to, to share but today like since like five years there's a lot of things happened in my, in my country and other countries in the region and that taught me a lot and maybe I, I was uh, I wanted to really share the experience I and my comrades uh, gathered during uh, this year. So I'm very, very happy to be here. Hi, my name is Lex Wharton and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. Oh, it's nice to hear Lex Watton's voice. Uh, he's pre-empting he pre the Radiothon. It's not Radiothon time yet, but of course... If you, he's excited already. Yeah, and you could subscribe any time you like. Uh, and uh, the, uh, Lex Watton and his people are uh, doing class action against the... Uh, uh, Queensland government at the moment, which is an interesting thing, which we should report on later on uh, in uh, future programs, uh, not to be forgotten. Uh, the uh, 
we've just been listening to a little chat that I had with uh, Lebanese activist uh, Farah Kobasi, except, of course, she says it in a far more exciting way, Farah Kobasi. Yes, I just I hear her speak about things happening in Egypt and I think I don't understand how people in the Middle East can understand what I'm saying because I'm obviously pronouncing everything wrong. Oh, well, that's exactly right. It's terrible. But it's a, a lovely language, lovely language. Um, and it's great. That's one of the things about this particular conference. It's great to see so many people have come together to uh, express and uh, uh, communicate ideas. That's, that, that's one of the standout features of this uh, Marxist conference is that people actually are standing there chatting with each other. Uh, and after every session, people actually contribute ideas. Mm. And did you notice that if you go online and see the uh, Marxist conference program, that with all the uh, programs, there's actually, uh, you have opportunities to do some reading before you turn up. Yes, it's, there's a interactive program because I was talking to the guy who made the website and he was very excited about the interactive program and I am too because I kind of work in tech uh, but for people who are not so excited about the technology behind it you can just get a bunch of readings online that are related to the to the topic of the discussion. Yeah I know it's fantastic I, I, and, and also the other elements of this particular uh, organisation of this conference the program there's this huge amount of information, but they've been able to tailor it, and it's been able you're able as a, a person who's part of the conference to understand quite clearly, quite a significant amount of streams: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight streams going on at the same time in each session, and uh, the information is laid out for you without you being having a sore head. I was. I'm. I'm impressed. <laughs> I in fact went up to the person and told them how how impressed I was at their ability to organise information. I've still managed to get slightly confused, but I think that's probably my own fault for getting up too early. Yeah, yeah, Obviously, Annie can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, coming up next is a chat with Kevin live. the uh, Burundi drummers uh, stop right there. That's called Australia. Isn't that wonderful? This uh, different interpretations of Australia by all the different multicultural people who have turned up to our shores. Wow. Yes. And Kevin, are you there? Yeah, look, I, you should play Waltzing Matilda. It's the only one I care about. Um, <laughs> the, look, yeah, I'm here. We'll do a week that was. I, I just a couple of comments on earlier stuff. Sandra's comments. I uh, this is rather a serious comment, actually. Um, from Engels and Marx, it's, it's always come out that 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 
the means of production decides human nature in a given society. And I think that's a great explanation of capitalism, how it captures workers in many ways. Because um, a dog-eat-dog society um, produces dog-eat-dog sort of people. <laughs> um, and, um, well, you know, it did. I mean, those, uh, the ones you talked about, the hunting societies were much more aggressive than the, the more passive um, um, uh, harvesting societies, gatherers. Yeah, so it was, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's always been, it's a pretty important analysis, actually. Uh, one, I just want to mention one more because you talked about women workers. There's a lovely study come out in the last few days by a U.S. company looking at five countries which says there's really only a 3.9% gap in women's pay in Australia. And the headline in this story in the Financial Review this weekend was women aren't paid that much less than men. So that's great news for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but Thanks, fact, Kevin. That, no, it's really good. And, and they... The study said they um, they adjusted it because they said one of the you know, one of the things you got to look at is that uh, men and women sort into different occupations and industries with varying earning potential, which is pretty important, I would have thought. But then they go on to say the study does not provide data on male and female salaries for the same role, which I thought might have been a touch relevant. <laughs> right, so they were grappling with the concept of equivalence, which a lot of people yes. haven't quite got on board, but then they decided they were going to ignore the obvious. Well, if you don't like the statistics, just um, change them. Yeah. That's right. Well, they have. They've done a great job of it. <laughs> and let's, let's move on to the week that was, team. Um, and a weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when despite the jokes which will be flying about, about disillusion... We astute souls know in this case the meaning, the meaning, and they are spelled differently, of course, is not the mental torpor brought on by our esteemed parliamentarians, but the act of dissolving, as big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull explained. <laughs> dissolving evil trade unions and lazy avaricious workers is vital to the transition of the economy. Uh, yes, Malcolm, transitioning from, from what to what? From grossly exploited of capitalism to even more grossly exploited of capitalism. Uh, oh, so, so you admit filthy, rich, bloated capitalists exploit the masses. Good heavens, no. That's that old-fashioned class struggle nonsense we have to eradicate, indeed dissolve, the rubbish only evil unions perpetuate. No, it's the masses, especially the evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers' masses who exploit. And top marks to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin explaining what the two disillusioning bills are about. One would make it difficult for criminal union bosses to keep their jobs. The other set up to keep lawless construction union and officials in line. Direct quote. Thank you, Lord Rupert, for such dispassionate objectivity and balance. Bosses used by the media and caring business class spokespeople and not by unions themselves to describe their officials a nasty, evil pejorative when applied to trade unions. A positive, high praise when applied to a caring business class good boss. 
which is why we saw all those bosses' crosses on Mount Profits yesterday. Malcolm, the Minister for Coshing the Workers, Michaela Kosh the Workers, and the top cop on the beat, Nigel Hedge, kissed the bosses, with the Mount Profits caring business class locals standing above them next to a portable automatic hand-drying machine, standing above their marionettes, pontificating that the only way to prevent the Mount Profits locals being crucified was to crucify those evil forces who were crucifying them. We gave you a fair trial with that unbiased, neutral, highly esteemed, highly respected jurist, his honour Mr Justice Dye's son, Hell on the Workers, who've proved beyond all reasonable doubt you must be crucified in the interests of all of us. They sentenced the evil unions and lazy avaricious workers after a fair trial, of course. Well said, Malcolm, well said, the puppeteers representing the all-of-us interests fingered the strings. But a common construction worker rudely intervened. That biased, kangamission, caring business class party up himself puppet wouldn't even let us cross-examine or test the allegations or raise the deaths and injuries so prevalent in construction. How dare you criticise so great a man? His honour simply knew you would use the right to test evidence to prolong proceedings and delay your inevitable crucifixion when the damning evidence came from irrefutable sources such as these puppeteers pulling our strings. And we note that after careful balanced consideration, his honour ruled himself that he was not biased. At which point Michaela approached an evil worker, held her breath and cautiously reached into and felt about in the toolkit. Good news, Malcolm. There's lots of nails in here. They'll do. And thus Malcolm and Michaela and Nigel and the caring business class who know what's good for us saved all of us from the evil of evil unions, placing the letters ABCC across the top of the crosses, which archaeologists in a time to come will determine stands for True Blue Aussie Building Workers Crucifixion Commission. Lucky they didn't crucify a thief each side of the evil workers or the bosses themselves would have been strung up. That Lord Rupert balance was exemplified Monday as we waded through the whopping sins coverage of all the things that matter, looking for its coverage of thousands and thousands marching Sunday to support evil, no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people. Page after page of people gathering to watch lots of noise and pollution roar around Albert Park, Grand Pricks. Then another spread, lots of people. Oh, here it is. But no, a fun run for charity, raising money to support that which our taxes are supposed to support. They probably could if it wasn't for these evil unions whose demise is essential to transition the economy. On and on, more and more critically important items, Lord Rupert style, but thousands marching to support those seeking our help, our compassion, many of them victims of our own invasions, not a word, non-news, unimportant. 
unlike real news, real debate on Sky Lie News, Lord Rupert style. As this week it was announced, Lord Rupert's favourite lackey hack, uh, sorry, usual suspect balanced columnist Andrew Bolt through the head, would have a program on Lord Rupert's Pay Me to Watch My Crap channel, which Andrew said was the only medium offering genuine news and real debate. And therefore he was proud to be part of it. He said that in Lord Rupert's very own whopping sin, no house advertising posing as news here. And same week it was announced another new news presenter on Sky Lie. Former big supremo, tiny a bit more for the boss's chief of staff, Peter Crediblein, as opposed to incredible. So obviously we can expect genuine news and real debate from Andrew and Peter. Well, Lord Rupert would never let them loose in front of a camera if he doubted their balance and objectivity. Let's qualify that we can expect, as I assume listeners to this station would never pay to watch the same crap we can watch on free-to-air without having, without having to hand our hard-earned to Lord Rupert. On which another of the great troubler wassies who know what's good for all of us, Frank Lowy than Lowe, he who knew it was good for all of us that the public purse provide billions to support his little soccer hobby, and it worked pretty well. We got his vote. OK, just the one vote, and we probably could have got it for a few billion less, like every cent of the few billion we spent less. Now he's found a new role for the public purse. We can build all the infrastructure we need without affecting the budget. Well, we can build all the infrastructure the corporate cowboys like Frank, who know what's good for us, tell us what's good for us. That is, infrastructure, which after the public purse has funded it, then turns over a neat little profit. Then, under Frank's latest burst of public altruism, the public sector, like Frank Lowy than Lowe himself, take it over and the cost doesn't appear as a budget loss because the private sector now owns it and rakes it in, as is its right, the neat little farce becoming big fat profit. Frank just never stops sticking up great ideas for the public purse, does he? Well, the last thing Frank wants is other people's taxes being wasted on other people. A conviction put into practice by the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country caring business class government budget just last week when it decided it had enough of wasting other people's taxes on other people just because those other people had a disability of some sort, slashing their benefits because the government must practice austerity, which is good for everyone, including the other people with a disability who have lost their benefits. But the positive is what they lose has been picked up by the wealthy, the filthy rich who received huge tax cuts. And well, someone had to pay for the tax cuts. And as our very own big caring business class, Big Supremos, pointed out last week, and government big shot Arthur Sins of Dunnus told us this week, the only beneficiaries from tax cuts for the rich are workers. Something about the tax cuts being used to generate jobs and increase wages. Apparently, the last thing the rich would do is pocket the windfall and begin their campaign for the next tax cut because the tax cut they're now not paying is screwing them and making True Blue was the uncompetitive on the great level playing field of world's best practice. So the British Chancellor did the disabled a favour. The disabled are just so lucky, the rich chorused, as they calculated their windfall. No single or even double disillusion for them. 
Poor old Arthur since have done us, whose memory becomes blanker than poor old Alan Stocks and Bonds, our old mate Bondy, whose mind eluded him altogether when he faced the Beko for getting his money very mixed up with other people's in a one-way exchange. Anyway, poor old Arthur had no idea where caring business class party political donations were coming from. Well, why would he? After all, he was only party treasurer. And no idea this company, subject to investigation by the corruption inquiry, was donating to the caring business class party. Well, again, how could he? He was only a director, so how would he know the company he was director of was donating to the party he was treasurer of? Well, grammatically, of which, but near mind. But as the proverbial hits the fan, we can only say in consoling poor old losing his mind, Arthur, Arthur, it couldn't happen to a nicer. Finally, as we capture the spirit of the holy dear baby Jesus season, theologians devoting their whole tomes to analyse the real meaning of some obscure tract, it strikes me there's a deep and meaningful tome in analysing the significance of the word crucifixion. Basically, we could argue it means the dear baby Jesus crew, that's the crew bit, have perfected fiction. And tomorrow we assume they'll make a film called The Reverend Revenant about the dear baby Jesus' comeback. But let's hope for the sake of industrial harmony, for the good of all of us, for productivity, for the transition of the economy, those evil unions and lazy avaricious workers never return from the dead. I say, is that Arthur on that cross? Good morning. Oh, good morning to you, Kevin. That was uh, Sarcasm Marathon. (laughs) That's exactly right. Thank you, Kevin Healy. And uh, we uh, have to swiftly move on to the next part of the program. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. We've been highlighting some of the amazing stuff that's going on at the Marxist conference. They have averted their eyes from the Easter uh, shenanigans. Yes, we've been mostly ignoring Jesus. Yes, and uh, it's on at the Victorian College of the Arts. And one of the speakers, the international speakers, is uh, South African Manglo Noisy. And uh, I'll let him tell you about himself. Okay. Now, Munda, you've had a long history of uh, activism. Can you tell me a little bit about your past life? Okay, uh, my past life, I mean, I started getting involved in the struggle when I was uh, at high school. Uh, I was a member of the then South African Student Movement, which was a a student organization catering for high school uh, students. And uh, after that, uh, which ultimately uh, culminated the uprisings in 1976, in South Africa against the instruction of a uh, medium of Africans as a, a medium of instruction at school. Thereafter, uh, you know, a couple of uh, my friends uh, got arrested and some went to exile and all that. But I actually remained in South Africa throughout my life. In uh, 1976, uh, the students rose against... Uh, against the system in South Africa and uh, it was uh, fundamentally to me, it was the turning point of the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. You uh, must have been very young. How old were you? Yeah, I was I was actually young. I think I was around, around 
around 15 at the time. Right. So all around you, people, your friends at school were uh, involved in this or was it just particular people who became more and more aware of what needed to be done? No, at the time, remember, it was very difficult. But So it was a couple of us, uh, although uh, obviously many students were aware of the situation, but they were not as active as a certain number of students. Because it's very courageous to stand up under such um, levels of uh, uh, oppression. Um, you must have yeah. been very brave. Yeah, it was it was very difficult, I must say. Uh, and also, remember, also the parents were very much against uh, any child getting involved in this. But uh, obviously, uh, I think the, the the movement, the influence of the the student movement then was very very. Uh, strong, and as a result, I think many of us, that's how they got involved into activism. And so was there a support structure, or did you guys support each other? No, we we just supported each other, and but there was also uh, the, the organization that was the university student organization called South African Student Organization, SASO, which was very supportive and actually very influential in helping uh, the South African student movement to take a certain decision. Now, with the student uprising, there were consequences and some people did actually lose their lives. What happened uh, then in terms of the way people uh, uh, felt about what to do next? Yeah, it was quite bad. And, and many of my friends actually left for exile and uh, unfortunately, uh, some of us became unfortunate because we got arrested. And then, uh, so we stayed in detention for quite a long time. What was that like? Where, where did they put you? And I was, I was in Devon. Mm. Yeah, I was in Devon. Were you with, uh, with your friends or were you all yeah, separated? There were, about, there were about 14 of us. Who were detained, and some of us, uh, some of my friends, actually left the country. And just uh, to be honest, what actually I got arrested the day after before I actually was ready to leave the country. You know, mm, right? Yeah. So I was arrested at home in Pinoni in Davidon, and then I was then sent back to Devon. But of course, it didn't end the struggle, did it? No, it didn't. Because uh, then, after a long marathon of the case, and then uh, some of uh, uh, my friends got, uh, you know, uh, we were taken to Robben Island, and uh, I was, and then a couple of us also were, you know, won the case, and we we then remained in the country, and then and subsequent to that, and I went to university, then I immediately then joined uh, SASO, which was subsequently banned. So did um, so that was banned. So there was this step-by-step, uh, step, uh, as people were creating support mechanisms and parties, the yeah. establishment was undermining them, right? Yeah. And when all, in fact, it was, you know, where SASO got banned when the... the Steve Devo died in prison. 
So the, because there were a lot of uh, uprisings against, that was 1977, and then uh, Starso and all the, the the black consciousness movements actually, and the newspapers got banned because of that. Uh, but then uh, uh, a year later, uh, in fact, two years later, another student organization was formed called the Azanian Student Organization, Azato, which, uh, you know, automatically uh, we were all part of it and then we, we carried on uh, with the struggle and then uh, up to a point where, uh, in fact, the UDF, the United Democratic Front, uh, got formed in uh, 1983 but then there was then, obviously, that meant that the Congress movement, because I had never been part of the Congress movement, personally. I always I grew up within the PC movement. So tell us, explain to us the difference. And the difference was that the, the Black Consciousness Movement emerged after the, the, both the ANC and the PAC, the, the African National Congress and the Pan-Africanist Congress, got banned in 1960s. So with the political lull, uh, which uh, then took place in the country, but then subsequent to that, in 1967, a debate apparently, well, I was, I was still very young then, I don't even know, I just know that there was then emerged the Black Consciousness Movement, which was completely different from both the ANC and the PAC. Mm. And uh, which then mobilized people, uh, the black people, to resist the oppression. And, and uh, in fact, uh, it was quite very uh, powerful in the sense that within a very short space of time, uh, the, people, uh, the people's confidence, the black people's confidence, then started rising up again. And they started resisting many of the laws that the, Afri- uh, the apartheid government was actually imposing on them. So, which, oh, go on, sorry. Uh, but uh, that actually emerged through students. In it was formed the student organization called the South African Student Organization, SASO, which uh, actually uh, resulted after the, the pulling out of black students from the National Union of South African Students, NUSAS, which was fundamentally led by white students. So uh, their pulling out of that student was that uh, it was it lacked the the interest in addressing the political situations which were affecting black students. So they they moved out of uh, NUSAS and then formed SASO, which uh, was the South African Student Organization. And uh, but then the, the the problem with that was that it was uh, campus based. So it was a problem that when people finish university. What would they do, you know? And then, and that, uh, based on that, then they went and worked out uh, after a lot of debates, and then they formed what was called the Black People's Convention, uh, which then catered for people who were no longer at the universities and ordinary black people. Do you think that, um, I mean, we're looking back at this history, and you live this history, uh, and where you were witnessing uh, the uh, African losing control, political control, effectively. But do you think it was the role of education that uh, caused this shift? Uh, because, of course, black people were being oppressed and had their land stolen uh, over a long period of time. Uh, 
I mean, it's a moment in history for change, right? Yeah. And um, what I'm wanting to know is why why did it happen then? Do you think? Well, uh, you mean the the the, the rise of uh, the consciousness of black people? Yeah, that's right. The rise of the consciousness. Yeah, I think that it was uh, definitely influenced by education, and uh, you know, uh, I think the reading of history and and all that that was actually directly responsible to actually strengthen and uh, rise against the the system. Yeah. Now, now the the thing is that uh, you went on to uh, work as a miner and. Uh, have uh, and you could see that um, there was a connection between workers' rights and uh, change. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. How old were you then? You know, with with me and uh, when I actually worked in, in the mine, that's when I actually uh, realized. But then, at the time, for me, uh, the, the that's when I started using, thinking, looking at the question, the class question, because I saw the conditions of black people. Although the mine at which I worked, I think the conditions were far much better than many other mines. But when we went and like played sports with other mines, and I saw the conditions, uh, the, the conditions were appalling under which the the miners were were living, were extremely appalling, and so that started changing my, 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 my thinking and then I started thinking about the class issue that I think fundamentally because there were also white workers there. But unfortunately white workers had never saw seen themselves as workers. They saw themselves as bosses irrespective of what the their situation was. And unfortunately obviously I think it was because of the apartheid influence and indoctrination as well as brainwashing of these white workers. But the conditions were were bad and I, by the time I went to university, uh, I already was uh, very much inclined to talk about the class issue in South Africa. But then, unfortunately, that uh, everybody would uh, discourage you from that because people would say, "No, you have to look at the national question, not first." You know, there are too many problems, not enough answers. Yeah, that's the thing, yeah. And, uh, but uh, I actually continued. And then when I arrived at Varsity, I think my, my class consciousness and uh, the question about class issues developed very, very strongly. And, uh, you know, I, I think I became part of the students who were really on the left. And then uh, we, but unfortunately, uh, there was no much support on that. Uh, everybody would would uh, shout you down, you know. <laughs> hmm. well, I was going to ask you, because you've held some roles in, um, you know, jobs you were elected to uh, represent uh, yeah. within the structures of some of the organ- left, left organisations, socialist organisations that you were part of. Uh, yeah. That whole, um, it's very important to work out how to get change uh, and the organisations and the way things are organised makes a big difference. What was your experience? Uh, are you hopeful for those kind of uh, organisations? Yeah, I, I was. I've always been. I, I have always been very positive, uh, despite all the difficulties. And then because you know, uh, at most in stages you would be called an ultra left. You know, uh, you know. Uh, workerist and, and uh, all these kind of things, but 
I think uh, my understanding of the situation was very clear that uh, it doesn't matter, you know, and the, the issue of uh, just pushing forward the struggle against apartheid without addressing the class question is going to lead us to have problems later. And indeed, that's the problems we have today because, uh, you know, the workers, despite the fact that they actually were responsible finally to deliver the the democratic situation in South Africa, but they haven't benefited anything. They actually have lost out big time. Can you tell me about that? Because I know that some people would say that uh, Nelson Mandela was uh, too lenient when it came to the negotiations uh, when it finally, uh, the edifice fell. But And the proof is that, as you say, uh, uh, local people are still suffering. Yeah, uh, look, uh, I think uh, Mandela did uh, what he did on the basis of, uh, I think he fundamentally, the, it, because people ignore the class question, you know, Mandela just became a figure that was responsible for getting the democracy, but uh, unfortunately, uh, he lost the understanding of what the world today is about, you know, uh, that was the, the world that we live in fundamentally uh, based on different, the interests of different classes, and that's what uh, they missed out completely. Uh, I wonder if they missed out or they deliberately, uh, you know, ignored the, the issue. You know? Yeah, you've moved on to, uh, uh, you've split from an organi- other organisations and you've created an a independent socialist movement ISM. Can you tell us about that move and uh, what you're aiming for? Yeah, look, uh, our aim is that fundamentally after 19, uh, after all this, the, what happened, the, the debates that we had across the political line, the ANC, PAC, Azapo, and all that, uh, it became clear that uh, the, we have missed the big issue about the struggle to address the class question. And uh, that's when uh, some of us then grouped together and formed uh, what we had then we called it the, the independent uh, socialist movement and subsequently uh, later then we changed it to international uh, socialist movement. But the fundamental aim is actually to work towards building a, a party of a socialist party of the working class which could, uh, uh, if uh, things work out, because we we convinced, in fact, I'm convinced that the only thing that can save not only South Africa, but the world as a whole, is a socialist revolution. I mean, I don't, I have no doubt about that, but obviously, to me, it means that we, we need to, ve- to work very hard and then make sure that uh, we are anchored within the working class and, and, and make sure that the consciousness uh, the class consciousness within the working class is very high, and the fundamentally uh, the unity of the working class, I think, is fundamental to anything that ultimately workers can win. What do, what does a socialist uh, revolution look like to you? What are the key things that need to change? Because I mean, I'm in full agreement. Uh, there needs to be system change. What are the keys? What are the what what are the keys to this change? You know, like what does the socialist revolution look like to you? Because I mean, you know, a lot of people go, "Oh, we're really scared. We're really scared of that." 
Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, <laughs> including many of my friends, I know it's like that. But the unfortunate thing is that uh, we 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 can't uh, we can't avoid that if we want to change society because the, the present society is anchored and uh, obviously uh, the bourgeoisie with the armies, the, the police, and the, 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 the judiciary system and all that it's it's really anchored and and, and unfortunately. Uh, which uh, the mistake that has been done by many uh, people uh, throughout history is that when they do get a revolution to take over, they still maintain the army, you know, in the system of the bourgeoisie, and unfortunately that cannot work because at the end of the day uh, it comes back to smash the system, you know, and go back to the capitalist order. So my belief is that when we 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 mobilize and conscientize the working class is to understand that fundamentally when they get involved in the revolution it's to go all the way you know make sure that the army is dismantled and then the the police as well as the judiciary system and come with a new order completely to move towards society so that at the end of the day we can be able to then work towards eliminating class divisions in society because only a classless society for me can actually be a better world for everybody. So it's about respect, isn't it? It's about changing what you consider to be important. Yeah. Um, how do you? What? I'll, uh, thanks for spending time with me. The uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you is, how do you feel about being asked to, to come to Melbourne to be part of this uh, important uh, festival of ideas at the Marxist Conference? I'm, I'm actually very excited about it. I must say, and I think it's an opportunity for me to meet other comrades from uh, other countries and then uh, share the ideas and then. And I, I think it will all of us. It, it will help to develop us so that when we go back to our countries and our comrades, we are able to give them uh, some ideas what other comrades throughout the world are thinking about uh, the socialist revolution and the, the the change of society. Because uh, honestly, uh, I think uh, our task throughout the world uh, is, is to actually make sure that we ultimately change the world for a better. Thank so you. I am actually very excited to be here, and then I think I'm going to learn a lot and take back home a lot of lessons to discuss with my comrades at home, and then see what what contribution can IFM make to contribute towards changing the world. How how did your message go in uh, South Africa with uh, workers? How do you go and talk to people? On their sites. Uh, normally, we, we we just talk to people in terms of uh, when uh, small groups and then sit down and whatever opportunity that we get and then or we organize uh, small meetings and then we talk to people and then show them why it is important for them uh, to be part of the movement uh, to change society. You know, like at the moment uh, in South Africa, it looks like it. It's exciting because of uh, NUMSA's uh, hope, you know, movement towards the formation of uh, the new federation and also building the movement for socialism. And we think uh, those are exciting times in South Africa, you know. And uh, as, as ISM, we think uh, 
it's our opportunity to really get involved and, and see what uh, we could get out of that as a, as a move towards uh, building a strong socialist party in South Africa. Um, I think that was an incredible it's story interesting, just there, it? yeah. And it reminded me of um, something that um, uh, Curry Peterson Smith, the Black Lives Matter, uh, Black Lives Matter activist from the US, and Ali Abunama, the um, Palestinian um, activists, were talking about, which was they talked about the victories that the boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign against Israel had won, and the Black Lives Matter, uh, back, uh, I can't speak today, Black Lives Matter movement had won. And that actually they were all connected and that, you know, we should celebrate these little victories, but ultimately we're in the fight of our lives, which is to bring these struggles together to change the system, which I think was one of the most inspiring things that I heard from the opening night. Yeah, well, Kiri Peterson-Smith is actually talking today at 2pm at the uh, Marxist conference. So uh, if you're interested in buying a ticket, go down to Victoria College of the Arts. And that's what Solidarity Breakfast has been highlighting today. Uh, We've got to go now because uh, it's almost the witching hour. And um, (laughs) today we've been, uh, as I said, highlighting the Marxist conference. We uh, had uh, a little chat with... uh, Sandra Bloodworth, who's going to again be speaking at 11.30am. We uh, also had a chat with uh, Lebanese uh, socialist Farah Kobasi. And uh, we finished off with uh, Mandela, uh, Mandel sorry, Golsi from South Africa, who is also going to be speaking today at 7.30pm about South Africa since apartheid. We also had a live chat with uh, Kevin Healy. Uh, this is the week that was. So it's been a rollicking morning, Kim. Exactly. So just turn up to the registration desk and I'm sure they can sort you out if you want to come today. Yeah. Coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents. One of the shadiest of these is the Liberals. An outspoken group on many subjects. <clears throat> 10 degrees to the left of center in good times. 10 degrees to the right of center if it affects them personally. So here then is a lesson in safe logic. I cried when they shot Medgar ever. Tears ran down my spine. And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy As though I'd lost a father of mine But Malcolm X got what was coming He got what he asked for this time So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Get it? Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.